We're going to be continuing in our series on the Gospel of John today, and we're, we're looking at John chapter 9, and the, the question or the, the title that I've put out there for this, uh, for this message is, is, what does it mean to be blind? As I was trying to think of, of, of what it means to be blind, uh, I, I recalled a student that used to, or a staff member actually, that was on my team here in Montreal, and one of the things that I love about my job is that I get the privilege of working with young people who have recently graduated from university, who have experienced a call to ministry, and are trying to figure out how to, how to take that next step. And Graham was one of those people. He had graduated um, from Western University, uh, he had joined staff with Power to Change, and we had the job of actually trying to train him up and teach him how to be a campus minister. Now, Graham had this unique challenge in that Graham was completely blind in one eye, and he had um, peripheral vision, some peripheral vision in his other eye. He could see, uh, he, he, was, he was functionally blind. But the funny thing with Graham was that you would never guess it. My first impression of Graham was actually, I'd, I'd been told that he had been assigned to, to come work in Montreal with us. Uh, I, was at, I was in Vancouver at a staff conference, and uh, somebody had pointed out to me, that's Graham, uh, earlier in the day, so I knew I could kind of identify him. And then I was walking through Stanley Park later that day, and somebody shot by me on a bicycle, and I kind of did a double take, and I was like, I think that was Graham. And sure enough, uh, I asked, I met him later in the day, and I said, I, I got to ask, did I see you shoot by me on a bicycle? I mean, I don't want to be insensitive, but, but did you shoot by me on a bicycle in Stanley Park earlier today? And he said, oh, yeah, yeah, I love biking. What a rush. <laughs> he said, you know, the trick, though, is I've got to stay, like, just pinned to the front tire of the person right in front of me, because if I lose them, I'm toast. <laughs> I'll hit a tree or something, but if I stay right on the tire of the person right in front of me, you know, I'm, I'm okay. And, uh, you know, we had, I had a lot of fun experiences with Graham, and, you know, uh, we, we took him skiing one day, and he told us he loved to ski, and again, he said, guys, I need you to wear a bright-colored coat and stay right in front of me, <laughs> and, uh, and don't, don't, don't lose me, just, you got to stay right near me, because otherwise I can get pretty lost on a ski hill. So we went to Jay Peak together, and sure enough, the first thing that happened was Graham took a turn, and, and we lost him on the ski hill for the next 45 minutes. But uh, the funny thing with Graham was that he was full of adventure, despite the fact that he couldn't, that, that, that he couldn't see very well. Um, and he was incredibly perceptive. So if you were in a group of people, Graham was often the one who noticed that somebody was uncomfortable or somebody needed something. He was just incredibly perceptive. And I often found myself asking, asking myself the question, how is this guy blind? I feel like he sees things that I don't actually see. How is he blind? It feels like he sees things that I don't actually see. And I just want to propose that that's at the heart of the story that we're going to look at today. It's the story of a, of a blind man who somehow winds up making everybody else look blind. And the question that we wrestle with, or that, the, that John wants us to wrestle with as we read the story, is how do we make sense of this blind man who's been healed and the fact that everybody else kind of looks blind? In terms of context, to kind of bring you into the story, last week Charlie taught on, on John chapter 8, uh, where Jesus winds up in a number of disagreements with the Pharisees over all kinds of things, but especially about his identity and their false confidence in their religious pedigree or in their good works. The arguments increasingly focus around their unwillingness to actually believe that Jesus is sent from God, despite the clear evidence that Jesus displays. And in John 9, really what we have and John's such a great gospel writer, the way he puts this together, but we have an illustration of what Jesus actually described in John chapter 8. 
John tells a story about a blind man that Jesus heals, but as is so often the case in the biblical narrative, physical blindness is, is a contrast or a foil that displays the spiritual blindness of the other people in the story. Our story is told in, in what I would say are three acts, three, three separate sections, and we're just going to take some time to walk through the different acts of the story, and then we'll reflect a little bit together on what it might mean for us. As we do that, let's bow in prayer. So Father, we thank you for your scriptures, we thank you for your spirit, we thank you that as we sit down to open a text that we can actually anticipate that the God who made everything actually wants to say something individual and particular to each one of us. So would you create expectation in our hearts that your spirit would speak? Would you give us ears that are attentive and eyes to see? And we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Act 1, John chapter 9. Jesus heals a blind man. It begins like this. As he went along, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus, but this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. As long as it is day, we must do the works of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. While I'm in the world, I am the light of the world. After saying this, he spit on the ground, made some mud with the saliva, and put it on the man's eyes. Go, he told him, wash in the pool of Siloam. This word means sent. So the man went and washed and came home seeing. So this is our first act. This is the, this is the first act of the play. All that really happens in, the, in this first act is that we've actually got a, a blind man, we've got a provocative questions from the disciples, and then Jesus responds by actually healing the man uh, in, a, in a particular way. I want to address the, the provocative question that the disciples ask, because maybe it's the question that we're tempted to ask at different points, right? Because the question that they ask is why? Why was he born blind? Jesus' response to them, though, immediately negates it. Right away, he says, that it's not about who sinned. You're asking the wrong question. <laughs> but Jesus then actually leaves them, if I can say, Jesus actually leaves them maybe with an even more awkward question. Because his response is that neither this man sinned nor his parents sinned, but this is so that God's work might be displayed in him. And it kind of makes us ask the question, did God cause him to be born blind simply to heal him and show his glory? Now, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this one because this isn't the main point of the story, but it's worth paying close attention to what Jesus says here. The question that comes out in the translation that we really need to figure out is, where does the phrase, the works of God might be displayed, that the works of God might be displayed, where does that fit in the, in the phrases that John's put together that Jesus says here? Are the works of God being displayed through the man's blindness or are the works of God being displayed through Jesus' healing of the blind man? This might seem like a needless kind of nitpicking at details here, but I think there's a really important case to be made for thinking that, um, that God's work being displayed should actually be linked with, we must do the works of him who sent me. So just to be really straight, the way that the Greek is put together there, it's hard to figure out where that phrase actually fits. The way that... Some translators, and I would think that it actually fits better, would be, would be to read it this way. Neither this man nor his parents sinned, 
But so that the work of God might be displayed in his life, we must do the work of him who sent me while it's still day. It may seem like a small point, but points out that God didn't make the man blind to show his glory, but sent Jesus to do the works of healing to show his glory. The thing that God is about here is actually that Jesus would be doing the work of healing, of restoring. Now, I admit it, I'm totally trying to duck a conversation here, right? And maybe you can bring it up in the Q&A if, if, uh, if, it's, if it's important to you. But I'm trying to duck a conversation here about whether God allows people to suffer or causes people to suffer. But I'm doing it to keep the emphasis of the story where John is trying to direct the emphasis of the story. I think the emphasis on doing God's work, and that's what glorifies God, may actually fit better with the way that John has actually put the gospel together and the way that John, uh, the way that Jesus actually talks about his work. Jesus consistently describes himself as the one who is sent by the Father to do the Father's work. So it would make sense then that Jesus would say, so that the work of God would be displayed in his life, I've got to do the work that the Father has sent me to do. Really what he's trying to say to us in some sense is, we participate in God's work by doing the work that God has sent us to do. We glorify God by doing the work that God has sent us to do. I bring it up because it would be easy to miss the point of the story by getting caught up in, a, in, a, in an eddy, in a side conversation that's not really, that the story isn't really seeking to answer for us. Jesus essentially says it this way. I like this translation from the message. It says, you're asking the wrong question. You're looking for someone to blame. There's no such cause and effect here. Instead, look for what God can do. We need to be energetically at work for the one who sent me here, working while the sun shines. And, and I say this because the big idea that I want you to walk away with from this, from this little section is that the disciples were asking a why question when Jesus is telling them, you should be asking a what question. The disciples were asking a why question when what Jesus is saying is, no, 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 it's not about why, it's about what God wants to do in this situation. And we'll talk a little bit more about it later, but the truth is we can all get caught asking a lot of why questions that sometimes derail us from the work of what, the, the thing that God actually wants to do in the midst of the suffering, in the midst of the trial, in the midst of the situation. The disciples asked a why question, and Jesus redirects them to a what question. What would you have us do in response? So the story continues. Jesus physically heals the man, and for whatever reason, we could speculate about it, but Jesus never seems to do it the same way twice. <laughs> so sometimes he lays hands on, sometimes he simply says the word. In this case, he actually makes mud out of spit and puts it under the man's eyes and sends him off on, a, on an adventure to find this pool of Siloam where he's going to go and wash it off, and that's how he's healed. And I think it's worth noting that the healing is gradual. Jesus makes mud, sends the man to wash, and then his eyes are open. In fact, one of the translations I was reading actually added some extra words in there to try to give you a sense of what the story should have looked or could have looked like. And they talked about the fact that this man would have had to be led to the pool of Siloam. He wouldn't have been able to find this on his own. He would have needed the help of somebody to actually bring him to that place. So we've got this gradual journey that's unfolding. Well, the story continues, and we're going to dive into Act 2. Act 2 begins in verse 8. It says, His neighbors and those who had formerly seen him begging asked, Isn't this the same man who used to sit and beg? Some claimed that he was. Others said, No, he only looks like him. But he himself insisted, I am the man. How then were your eyes open, they asked. He replied, the man they called Jesus made some mud and put it on my eyes. 
He told me to go to Siloam and wash, so I went and washed, and then I could see. And you can almost hear him adding in the words, it sounds like a crazy story, doesn't it? Where is this man, they asked him. I don't know, he said. They brought him to the Pharisees, the man who had been, born, or who had been blind. Now the day on which Jesus had made the mud and opened the man's eyes was a Sabbath day, a day of rest. Therefore the Pharisees also asked him how he had received his sight. He put mud on my eyes, the man replied, and I washed, and now I see. Some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others asked, how can a sinner perform such signs? And so they were divided. Then they turned again to the blind man. What do you have to say about him? It was your eyes he opened. And the man replied, he's a prophet. They still did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight until they sent for the man's parents. Is this your son, they asked? Is this the one you say was born blind? How is it that now he can see? We know he's our son, the parents answered, and we know he was born blind, but how he can see now or who opened his eyes, we don't know. Ask him. He's of age. He'll speak for himself. His parents said this because they were afraid of the Jewish leaders who had already decided that anyone who acknowledged that Jesus was the Messiah would be put out of the synagogue. And that was why his parents said, he's of age, ask him. A second time, they summoned the man who had been blind. Give glory to God by telling the truth, they said. We know this man is a sinner. He replied, whether he's a sinner or not, I don't know. One thing I do know, I was blind, but now I see. Then they asked him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered, I have told you already, and you did not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? And this is where he gets a little sassy. Do you want to become his disciples too? Then they hurled insults at him and said, you're this fellow's disciple. We're disciples of Moses. We know that God spoke to Moses, but as for this fellow, we don't even know where he comes from. And the man answered, now that is remarkable. You don't know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners. He listens to the godly person who does his will. Nobody has ever heard of opening the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. To this they replied, you were steeped in sin at birth. How dare you lecture us? And they threw him out. So after being healed, John includes this interaction that makes up the heart of the story. People are unwilling or unable to recognize that a miracle has taken place. In fact, there are four groups of people that wind up in kind of coming in and out of this scene that participate in this interrogation. First, it's his neighbors that don't recognize him and don't believe that this could actually be the same guy, right? <laughs> and actually, in that interaction, one of the things that we learn is that the blind man himself does not know very much about Jesus. He doesn't have good answers for who Jesus is. Then we've got the religious leaders that get involved out of disdain for Jesus. And what's their concern? Well, their concern was that Jesus had potentially broken one of their stringent Sabbath laws by working or healing on a day of rest. And then they interview the blind man himself. First, they call in his parents who out of fear for the religious authorities avoid answering. And then they bring the blind man back in and the conversation gets a little heated with the blind man getting a little sassy, as I said. The question you should start asking yourself after witnessing these groups of people debating whether the man was healed and who Jesus really is, the question that you should be asking is, who's actually blind in this story? 
We've got neighbors who can't pick the guy out of a crowd and can't decide if he's been healed. We've got his parents, we've got him, we've got Pharisees. Who's actually blind in this story? Because it seems like nobody actually knows what's going on. This act ends with the blind man being thrown out of the synagogue, and then the story enters the third act. Verse 35 says, Jesus heard that they had thrown him out, and when they found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? Who is he, sir? The man asked. Tell me so that I may believe in him. Jesus said, You have now seen him. In fact, he's the one who's speaking to you. Then the man said, Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him. Jesus said, For judgment I have come into this world so that the blind will see and those who see will become blind. Some Pharisees who were with him heard him say this and asked, What? Are we blind too? Jesus said, If you were blind, you would not be guilty of sin. But now that you claim you can see, your guilt remains. So the blind man's journey towards Jesus kind of reaches its climax here. One of the questions that the story has us tracking is whether the man really understands who Jesus is. Because Jesus goes from being, if you watch the different words that he uses to describe Jesus, Jesus goes from being a healer to being a prophet to being a man from God and then eventually lands on this title, this this son of man. And this title, son of man, while it sounds really earthy and human, is actually a title that Jesus uses to refer to himself, to refer to his divinity in John's gospel. So when Jesus invites him to believe in the Son of Man, he's inviting him to believe that Jesus is the God who made everything, who's actually come down in the flesh. He's inviting him to believe in something that he can't actually fully see, something that actually requires spiritual sight. And what's the end result? What happens as a result of his belief? Worship. I actually think that's probably the true test of whether anybody has actually seen Jesus for who he actually is, that they would worship him. If the man had agreed with everything that Jesus had said about healing, but hadn't actually worshipped, it would be a sure sign that he hadn't actually seen Jesus, that he was still spiritually blind. But he does see Jesus, and he worships. This is also, though, the climax of the story for the Pharisees, because the question that we've been wrestling with from earlier on in the Gospel of John, in the, in the passage that Charlie looked at last week, and in fact throughout the whole Gospel of John, has been this question of, what about these religious leaders? Will these religious leaders actually open their eyes and recognize who Jesus actually is? Or will they remain stuck in their blindness? It culminates in the, in the Pharisees literally asking Jesus the question, what, do you think we're blind too? Unfortunately, Jesus responds by telling them that it's the very fact that they think that they can see that actually keeps them blind. The fact that they think that they can see is what actually keeps them from actually seeing Jesus. Jesus tells them that this is the purpose for him coming in judgment, that those who arrogantly insist that they know the truth would find themselves blind to reality, while those who humbly admit their lack of sight would have their eyes opened to the truth of God's love and redemption. So our story ends there. What in the world do we do with it? 
The first thing that the, the story forces us to ask, as I've said, is what does it really mean to be blind? There's the obvious physical blindness of the man, but the story ends with Jesus telling the Pharisees that they are blind. Borrowing a definition from Tim Keller, we could say it this way, if physical blindness is an impaired ability to recognize the truth of our surroundings, then spiritual blindness is an impaired ability to recognize the truth of your spiritual surroundings. The spiritual reality of our world, of God, and even of our own heart. As we begin thinking about blindness, I realize we tend to think about blindness in a fairly binary way. You're either blind or you're not. It might be helpful for us to begin thinking about blind spots, right? Because I think for many of us who have been going to church for a long time, we think to ourselves, this story doesn't really say very much to me because I can see Jesus. I worship Jesus. I've seen who he is. And yet, and yet, the story seems to hint that it's possible to have some blind spots. Because blindness shows up in interesting ways in the story. Early in the story, we looked at the life of the, we looked at the questions of the disciples, right? Then it would be easy to argue that the disciples, they've got a bit of a blind spot. They know who Jesus is. We've gotten that far in the story. But when they look at people, the way that they view people is kind of tainted by sin. They see this man, and instead of seeing somebody who's hurting and suffering, they see somebody, and the question they want to ask is, is this guy a really bad guy, or were his parents just really bad people? We've got other people in the story who are simply blind to the Son of God, who is literally wandering around in their midst. We've got Pharisees who refuse to see what's right in front of them. So spiritual blindness shows up in a number of different ways in the story. The other thing that we see in the story is that healing from blindness is both instant, it happens, and it's gradual, right? We've got, just like we've got the man going on a journey, in a sense, at the beginning of the story where Jesus, he encounters Jesus, and then he gets the mud on his eyes, and then he has to actually make this journey to the pool of Siloam, and somebody's going to have to lead him there, and he washes, and that's how the healing actually takes place. In the same way, we have this man going on a spiritual journey where his, he has a growing and unfolding understanding of who Jesus is that's being shaped and changed over time as he's thinking more about it, as he's being pressed with questions, and as he actually encounters more of Jesus. So we've got this healing from blindness that's, that's gradual, that's taking place over time. And we've got the disciples who maybe are an illustration of that. They've got these blind spots. They see Jesus, but they don't still fully understand the spiritual surroundings. They don't still see people properly. And at the end of the day, it seems to tell us that spiritual sight seems to be dependent on the healing of Jesus and the humility of people. For our purposes today, maybe we could think about blindness in three ways. There are three things that people are blind to in the story. They're blind to people. They're blind to Jesus. And they're blind to the work that God wants to do in the world. They're blind to people. I mean, this shows up in the way that the disciples and the Pharisees bring assumptions about the sinfulness of the blind man that keep them from really seeing him as somebody who's actually loved by God. Their move to compassion is consistently blocked by the fact that they see him through the eyes of judgment, and it makes them blind to him. People are blind to Jesus. This one seems maybe really obvious because it's the theme that shows up with the Pharisees. But it's the same thing with the man, right? He's going on this journey, this growing understanding of who Jesus actually is. It's maybe most obvious, though, in the Pharisees, right? Right? 
kind of a big deal when you've got the sinless Son of God right in front of you, and when people ask you who you think they are, they say, this, clear, this person is obviously a sinner. <laughs> they, they, they missed it. They're blind to Jesus. But the other theme that shows up, I think, is blindness to God's work in the world. Because in the disciples, we have this sense of blindness to what God was doing. When they came across the blind man, their first instinct was to ask whether it was him or his parents who have sinned. But Jesus points out, no, 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 that's not what's going on here. This isn't about who sinned. This is about the opportunity to do the work that God has given us to do today. To actually bring healing and restoration. At the close of the story, Jesus points out that the work that he's doing in the world is judgment. And maybe you've got a particular understanding in your mind of what judgment might look like, but in this story, the way that judgment shows up is, is giving sight to the blind who are humble and willing to ask, and blinding the stubborn ones who claim to see but don't actually see. Again, in the message, it says it this way, I came into the world to bring everything into the clear light of day, making all the distinctions clear so that those who have never seen will see and those who have made a great pretense of seeing will be exposed as blind. So when we talk about spiritual blindness, what do we mean? It's an impaired ability to recognize the truth of your spiritual surroundings. In this case, the truth about the people that God loves, the work that he's doing in the world, and the identity of Jesus, his son. Now, the way that John tells the story really leaves us with the question, what am I blind to? What blind spots might I have? Because every character other than Jesus in the story seems to be blind to something. We're meant to read this story and consider whether we might ourselves be spiritually blind. Ultimately, whether we're blind to Jesus, but let's not miss out on the warning that we can have blind spots in the way that we view people and God's purposes in the world. I've sat with these questions for the last week, and I just wanted to share some of the ways that I've recognized my own spiritual blindness or blind spots. And maybe you can process these questions for yourself. As, as I talk them through. So how have I been blind to the people that God loves around me? Well, I've been on vacation for the last two weeks, hence the beard. Um, and as I went on vacation, I thought to myself, I need to be really clear about my boundaries here. I need to like shut off my email and not look at my calendar and just kind of put things away and, and really take a break. And uh, the problem was that so many of my friends are actually coworkers. They're, they're people that I work with. So sure enough, uh, one of our friends showed up at our house this week and, uh, and started talking about some of the really challenging stuff that their family was going through and the ways that that was affecting the, the, their ability to, to minister with, with power to change and, and different things. And, um, you know, as, as they talked about what they were experiencing, just really honestly, I found myself internally kind of minimizing it I found myself tempted to blame them for what they were experiencing, to view it just through the lens of this is a problem that I'm going to have to solve when I come back from my vacation. And I realized after the conversation, I totally missed out on the opportunity to actually care for somebody who was hurting because I couldn't get past seeing myself as somebody who was on vacation, which really sounds a lot like Sabbath. <laughs> Like, really feels a lot like what the Pharisees did, right? Where, like, Jesus, you shouldn't be healing people because it's the Sabbath. I missed out on seeing somebody. I missed out on actually seeing the, the struggle that they were facing and how God might want to use me to encourage or support them because I couldn't get past the, the fact that I was on vacation. Found myself blind to the people 
that God loves around me. They became, people became obstacles to my peace rather than image bearers that I was called to love and serve. So I'm curious, if you think about your, your week this last week, how might you have been blind to the needs of people around you this week? How might you have missed seeing them and their need because of your agenda, your priorities, your own busyness? Are there people that God maybe put on your path that were hurting or struggling that you just didn't see because you didn't have time or because you didn't have the, the mental space or because you, you had other things that felt more important? How might you have missed seeing the people that God loves around you? Second question I considered this week, what purposes might I be blind to? What might God be doing in the midst of a difficult situation that I'm not able to see because I'm stuck on the why question? God, why is this happening? Or the how question? God, how in the world is this going to be? So the disciples at the beginning of the story, they got caught in the why question. They see the blind man, and instead of reacting with compassion, the question is a why question. God, why did this happen? But, but the neighbors actually ask a great, a great how question. They see the blind man. They see that he's been healed. They can't believe it. And the reason is, how in the world could this be? Like, how, how could this happen? A couple of weeks ago, uh, right before vacation, I was, uh, I was in um, BC at our staff conference for Power to Change. So we had gathered together with all of our 550 staff from across Canada. And we... Um, you know, as a leader in the organization, I've got to be honest, I, I felt a lot of pressure because the last couple of years in ministry have been really challenging. Uh, there's been this global pandemic thing that's been happening that's affected all kinds of stuff. There's been all kinds of different pressure around different social issues that are taking place in the North American church right now that we feel compelled to, to try to speak to. We've got staff who are simply tired out, burned out, wrestling with kind of next steps in ministry. Uh, the COVID question became a, you know, a big thing again because you've got people who can't travel because of vaccination status. You've got all kinds of different things that kind of piled up. And as I was going into the conference, I felt just this massive weight on my shoulders of, God, how in the world are we going to actually resolve all the problems that need to be resolved so that we can actually go back on campus in, in September and actually keep doing the work that, he's, that you've called us to do. So I spent six months strategizing and trying to figure out what are the seminars that we need to offer? What's the training that we need to do? Who's the speaker? What's the prayer times? How do we put all the pieces together in such a way that we manage to resolve all of the problems that exist? Which of course is impossible. So I found myself just weighed down going into the conference. And then in the midst of the first evening of worship, as we were worshiping together, it was like a, there's this voice in my head that just really clearly said, yeah, or God could show up. And I remember just feeling instantly foolish and, and relieved, really relieved. That's right. That's right. Or God could show up in the midst of this mess. Or, or God could show up in the midst of all the problems that I think I need to solve how in the world are we going to solve all of these things? I don't know, but maybe God could show up and actually meet me in the midst of that. And we had this amazing week together where not all the problems were necessarily solved, but it seemed really clear that God was showing up in the midst of it and walking with us through some, some difficult challenges. I am often stuck on the why question and the how question. God, why is this happening? And how in the world do we get past it? 
And those questions often make me blind to what God's actually doing in the midst of those situations. They keep me from actually seeing how he might actually be at work. So where in your life today do you need a reminder that God is at work and that he can actually work it out? That he could actually show up? Last question. How might we be blind to Jesus right now? From our story, it seems really obvious that many of the people were blind to Jesus himself as the Son of God. And I just wonder if being blind to Jesus actually looks like an absence of hope or worship in the midst of suffering or difficulty. I don't say this in any way to minimize the different challenges that each one of us is wrestling through today, but I'm struck by the examples that we read in the scriptures of people who in the midst of of prison and suffering and great difficulty actually find themselves drawn to, to worship God. And I think it's because they realize they don't really have any hope outside of Jesus. So I wonder whether the diagnostic question for whether we're actually seeing Jesus might relate to our worship of him. Are there situations in your life today where you've actually stopped looking to Jesus as the one who can actually meet you, the one who actually can bring you hope in the midst of that particular challenge? Maybe for some of you today, you find yourself wondering what you're missing about Jesus. Like the blind man in the story, you've begun to see Jesus as an interesting teacher or a healer, or as a, as a religious leader, a moral leader. But you're starting to see that there's more to Jesus than you realized. And if you're feeling that here today, that sense of, boy, I feel like I'm missing something about Jesus. I'm not fully seeing him. I actually just want to invite you to simply ask Jesus to open your eyes, to see him as he really is. That he would give you spiritual insight into who he is as the God who made everything, who came in the flesh to repair what's broken in our world, to repair what's broken in ourselves. And I hope that you see in the story that all Jesus asks us to do is to draw near to him with a heart that's willing to believe and he'll give us new life. So, in light of this very present promise of Jesus that those who acknowledge their blindness their blind spots, their need, would find sight that results in joyful worship. Let's pray together. Father, would you graciously open our eyes to see Jesus again today? Would you gently expose the blind spots that keep us from seeing you, that keep us from seeing you at work, that keep us from seeing people? Would you forgive us? Would you make us people who walk around with full sight? We praise you as the only one who gives us hope. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.
as always, we're going to have a time question and answer. You can text in your questions, or if you're here in the sanctuary, you can just raise your hand. And we got uh, someone with a roving mic. Um, is that Jeremy over here up in the front? Uh, already, we're having a, you can bring the, the microphone over there. Uh, Andy, wow. Uh, as you're talking, I realized... Uh, that my problem in the morning, I have this uh, issues with mornings where I realize what it is. It's a morning blindness. It's not just a morning grogginess. It's a morning blindness because I don't feel like worshiping. I don't, worship doesn't sound appealing to me. Staying in bed sounds appealing. I mean, this morning, I'll be honest with you, if uh, I didn't have responsibilities, I would have skipped, you know? And... It's now I'm here and it's like, wow, God is good. I'm thankful to be here. I'm thankful to be thinking about these things. I'm, I'm thankful to be stirred in my heart to worship. And that's this blind man. He gets to this point of worship. Is he, he, he probably the first person in the book of John to worship. I don't know. I have to think about that where it's like, I think it's, I just realized like a, a sign of blindness. A sure sign of blindness is worshiping Jesus doesn't sound appealing. There's something we're not seeing, so. Thanks for stirring that. All right, so let's go here. Jeremy. Thank you. Um, I'm really happy that every time I come in, somebody calls me out by name when I'm about to ask a question. I'm like, is that Jeremy? And I'm like, yeah, okay. Um, so I have a question. I'm sort of going to formulate it a little bit differently. Um, Having read through this passage myself several times, having read through several passages uh, of the Bible and the New Testament, um, I noticed that there's many different spots where healing is done. Um, and I always notice that there's two types of healing being done. Uh, there's physical healing, and then there's spiritual healing. I find that in our current society, uh, and this could be a stumbling block for a lot of people, there's a lot more spiritual healing and not a whole lot of physical healing. I know some people in my life who have told me I don't understand how in the Bible there's the miracle of physical healing, a man who's blind can see, really see, not, you know, spiritually see, but see. Why is it that my physical ailment hasn't been healed? Why is it that my faith has not healed me in this case? What's the difference? Is it because it's not Jesus himself who's doing it? So I'm kind of curious, what's your commentary on that, on the idea of the physical healing that maybe we're not seeing a whole lot of today? Um, maybe, you know, there is some that's being done in private that we're not all witness to, but why is it that sometimes in our lives we feel that our physical ailments are not being healed in the same way as people were healed in the New Testament? Yeah, great question. And one that I resonate with personally, really honestly, uh, because I haven't seen a lot of healing necessarily, um, at least not on the scale or the, uh, w with the level of drama that I see when I read the New Testament. And I think some of that relates to expectation and kind of the way that we, the, the kind of the culture that we live in today in North America, where we have a much greater expectation that that, that healing is going to take place through hospitals, through doctors, through uh, through science, um, and some of that, um, I wonder if like that, that affects the way that we ask, the way that we approach healing, uh, and some of that, I think, just reflects the fact that when you look throughout history, um, God acts in different ways at different times in different cultures, 
And, and I, that, that's maybe one of the harder things to, for, that I've found to, to kind of grapple with. It's both comforting and, and frustrating because I look at, um, I'll, I'll pull it into a different, I'll pull it into a bit of a different sphere. Um, we're in Quebec. We often talk about the fact that there are very few evangelical Christians in Quebec. We, we might relate that more to, this, the, to the space of, um, of spiritual healing. Why isn't there more spiritual healing that's taking place? Why aren't there more people who are being reconciled to God? And yet at the same time, we know that when we look at the story of Quebec, there was a massive revival that spread through, through the province in the 19, uh, early 1980s, right? And you've got this moment in time where God chose to bring thousands of people to faith. And when you look across the landscape of the French church in the province, the the majority of pastors in churches today are people who came to faith during the revival of the 1980s. And you look at that and you think, okay, so there was this moment in time where God chose to bring some sort of revival that brought thousands of people to faith. And I have some friends who work for, for Power to Change in Montreal during that season, and they said, yeah, it was, it was phenomenal. We went from seeing nobody come to faith to suddenly, like, every week without fail, we would see a couple people, each person would see a couple people come to faith. And they said it happened for, like, three, four years, and then it stopped. <laughs> and they said it, like, kind of stopped as mysteriously as it began. And they said we can't attribute it to anything except that's what God decided to do at that particular time, and we long for it to happen again. And we pray that it would happen again. But we're, we're, if I can say it this way, we're stuck trusting God for his timing and, and why he's doing it that way. So when I think about the question of healing, I think I wonder if that's something that happens in, like that in God's sovereignty, he just works in different places in different ways at different times. And when I talk to some believers in Africa, sometimes I hear stories about healing that's taking place there that feels so distinct and different from what I've experienced in, in Montreal. And yet that seems to be something that God's doing in that particular place and in that particular time. I don't know how to explain the why behind it, other than I would just say, I think you can actually look across history and recognize that there have been moments where God has moved in particular ways, whether it's physical healing, whether it's revival, there's just things that the Spirit does at particular moments, often in response to, to people's prayers, but often just attributed to God's sovereignty as well. And I, I was chatting with a friend recently who just talked about the fact that, you know, how do I make sense of the fact that there's revival taking place in Iran when it's not taking place in, in Quebec? And, and you know, you, you kind of move around the globe and you look in different places, and there's some places that are just, God's doing these unbelievable works, and we look at it and think, I want that. Um, but that's not what God's doing in, in Quebec today, necessarily, to the same, to the same extent. So... My, my answer would probably be somewhere along, like my commentary would be around that. It would be, yeah, God seems to do different things in different places at different times in response to prayer, in response to expectations, but also just in in, as a result of, of who God is and, and what he's doing. That question has been all over my mind lately. And uh, you mentioned Iran. Got together with the brother this week from Iran. So he'll, I see him floating over there. Um, <clears throat> been thinking about this and really myself I've been really uh, at times uh, struggling with being unsatisfied with the level of um, I don't know how to say it the the level that God's name is hallowed recognized here and I think that's a good 
It's a good discontentment to have. We're supposed to have this, like, Lord, hallow your name. Make yourself known. Make yourself known. And uh, it really grieves me that when you read the book of Acts, it seems like every city they go in, everyone is talking about this thing that's happening. And me personally, like, I would love if God, like, healed a blind man because I think that would get the attention of the city. But for me, it's not really about it has to be that. I just, I'm, I'm so, like, not content that here we are worshiping the living God. Here we are uh, messengers and uh, children of the living God. And we have this city, this province, uh, it's largely going unnoticed. You know, and that's like so, so not, that's so in contrast with how God seems to work. Like wherever God's acting, like his name is being hallowed. People are talking about it. So it's like this big prayer, like, Lord, do something great. Show yourself, show yourself. And um, Andy mentioned um, it, it really seems like uh, I think there is an element of, of, of God's timing and God acting. But when I think about the revival that's happening in Iran, and I think about when I, the contrast between the book of Acts and here, it is true that we're not seeing the miracles regularly, at least what you read about in the book of Acts, but there's something else we're also not seeing that I feel like we should acknowledge, and that's the persecution. And it seems to me that there's a linking in the Bible between persecution and God's miraculous power. Acts chapter 4. Lord, look upon their threats and continue to grant us boldness and perform signs, wonders, healings. And uh, so I guess maybe uh, are we ready for that? Are we ready for both of those things? Because perhaps they come as a package deal. And that's just the question I've been asking myself. Like, am I ready for that? If, if I want God's name to be hallowed, Am I okay with perhaps losing my stuff? Okay? One more comment I check out just connected to that. I wonder if, uh, and, and I think healing is always miraculous. Like, I think there's always something unbelievable about that that speaks to the power of God. I wonder, though, if you were to ask the question in a city like Montreal, what would, what would stand out as a radical move of God in our, you know, that would cause the, the city to wake up and say, like, wait a minute, there's something going on at Westview. Healing might be that thing. Or it may be actually a group of people who are choosing to live not for themselves, but for someone else, for the, for the good of the city, who are actually radically sacrificial in the, way that we use, in the way that we use our money and our resources to actually bless the city. I wonder if there's something in a, in a post-Christian modern culture, I wonder, if the, I wonder if the miracle of radical generosity and hospitality may actually show up as a, even a louder splash than, than a healing. It, man, the great miracle that you read through, the guy's eyes getting open was a big deal, but we saw miracles earlier in the book. The great miracle is when the guy worships. Like, that's the thing, like, that is real sight. And I'll tell you what I think would get the attention of the city and such. Walking in the doors here, and there's 50 young people in the front, arms up in the air, worshiping, when young people are known for the opposite of that type of life, to be honest, the, the world, the things that people are living for, I mean, it goes to all generations, but young people are leaving the church. The, the, the news, the, the, the world will say that. Um, that's why it's like in my heart, um, that's like such a desire to see. Uh, so I'll tell you what, when I was someone who would go to Bible studies just to debate with them and tell them they were wrong on my college campus 
and I had a name for myself as someone who could debate Christians. And then when I came back as a Christian, praising God, and the same people saw that, I can tell you the jaws were dropped as if seen a man risen from the dead, as if seen someone whose eyes have been opened. All that to say God can show himself in, indeed, I think greater ways than physical miracles. There are greater, more wonderful things. But at the same time, I've been challenged. If there is someone blind here who wants healing, I'm not, come up and, and I'll, you know, we'll lay hands on you and we'll ask. And, and uh, we'll seek God for that while also desiring um, the, the acts of revival. That was, that was a long answer. Uh, Everybody. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Next time you preach, we get someone else to do the Q&A. Otherwise, it's just like instead of questions and answers, it's just question time. It's question time, one question. Okay, we're gonna, we got to do another one. Um, uh, uh, yeah, there's a, a lot of good ones, I think. <laughs> okay, here we go. For whatever reason, the man was born blind. Doesn't that make God selfish for allowing or causing it to happen for his own glory? This will be an easy one, right? <laughs> Why? Why did it happen? Why did it happen? Why was a man born blind? Yeah, and I think that's why in that passage, I actually think it's useful to pull out kind of what is God doing in the midst of that versus... Um, Versus assuming that there is some kind of nefarious end in place where God is blighting the world with suffering just so that he can show people that he's kind and gracious, as opposed to really understanding the, um, we live in a fallen world and there's the, the brokenness of sin touches everything. And God is a gracious God who, in spite of the fact that sin has infected everything, every person has infected, uh, has infected systems and cultures and um, even, even just our bodies, that in spite of that, that God actually, and that, 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 is a, that is a consequence of human sin. But in spite of that, God is actually gracious to bring healing, to restore, and to point our eyes. I mean, I think so much of, Jeremy, what you were asking is a question of, hey, God, we know we're heading towards something that looks like healing. Like that, every, you know, one day uh, there'll be no more tears. We know we're heading towards that. Why are we stuck in the middle? And why don't we experience as much of that now that we want, you know, that, that we long for? Um, so, yeah, rambling answer to say, yeah, I resonate with that. We live in a broken world. So I think to attribute the brokenness of the world to God would be a misattribution. So we need to be careful about that. Uh, Instead, what we look at is, no, actually, we live in a broken world that's broken due to, human, like, to, the con due to the consequences of sin, and God is actually quite gracious to intervene, to bring healing, to bring restoration, both spiritually and physically, and ultimately, that's what we're heading towards. Yeah, there, there's a number of questions along the same line that came in, questions about why and questions of suffering and... I think we could have a really long conversation that explores this from the, the lens of God's sovereignty and explores it also through the lens of human responsibility and human sin. And, and uh, we've done this to ourselves. And 
Um, we can have a, a lot of questions, but I think at the end of the day, here's the question for us. This is like perfect example. It starts out like they're asking questions, and Jesus turns around basically like, uh, you know, you're asking the wrong question. Here's the question for us that I think God is saying, because the story's not done yet. We're like, we're like in the middle of a movie or in the middle of a book and saying, stop. <laughs> How can this be? How is this ever going to end well? And the great author turns to us and say, do you trust me? Because that's really what this is about. You think... How can this suffering ever be resolved? How can this ever work out for good? How can God ever actually be good if this is going on? Stop. Stop. Do you trust me? He sent his son into the world to die for our sins because he's good and he loves us and he wants us to know him. He wants to know us intimately. He showed us his love. There's a million reasons why you can question God and what he is saying, do you trust me? Are you willing to trust me? Because if you will, you're going to see glory. You're going to see this work out for glory. And I'll just add one thought. Because what really struck me in, that, uh, in those verses early on, when, when the disciples asked the question, is they ask, Jesus, why? And Jesus says, no, wrong question. What are we going to do about it? So I do think it comes back to us to say, you know, in the midst of a world, I, I think actually one of the most powerful pictures of, hum of human goodness is actually the way that we accompany people in the midst of difficulty and suffering. You've never watched a movie that you love that didn't have a moment where somebody was suffering and then somebody came alongside and actually met them in that and cared for them. That's what makes us cry, right? That's what, that's what brings a reaction. So there is actually something beautiful that happens when we, yeah, we ask the why questions and we wrestle with them, but we, get, we move past it to say, and what are we going to do about it? What's it going to look like to accompany somebody who's... Who's suffering? Okay. I know we're done. <laughs> I know we're done. You just told something that sparked a story in me that's really funny. I'm not sure if it's like especially edifying or not, but I just can't resist. Okay. My closest friend growing up, I've shared the story of actually how I saw him come to Christ before my eyes. And uh, that's, anyways, um, he struggled for a while to go to church. I kind of challenged him he needed to go to church. He needed to go to church and talk to him on the phone. He, finally, he like visited this like mega church in Wisconsin. And the, the person giving the speech was talking about Hurricane Katrina at the time. And he was asking these questions of why. Why would God do this? And he was exploring it from all the questions of why, why, why. And afterwards, um, this woman came up to him. This young woman came up to my friend and said, like, so what did you think of that? And he's like, well, I just met you. I don't know if I really want to tell you. And he's like, okay. That guy just went on and on about why this, why this, why this. And my thinking is, beep happens. <laughs> Curse word happens, if you don't know the expression, you know. Beep happens. The question for us is, what are we going to do about it? <laughs> what he didn't know is, that was the mega, past, mega church's lead pastor's daughter that he was talking to. <laughs> She's not used to having people talk to her like that. <laughs> so what did she do? She married him. <laughs> so, I don't know. I just had to tell the story when you're going down that road. Okay, uh, I'm going to pray. Lord God, bring us to a place of worship in our hearts. Allow us to see. Lord, every day we wake up blind. We wake up with hearts that are not fully 
joyful as we should be in you, Lord. Open our eyes to see the truth. Open our eyes uh, to know that we don't see things as we ought, Lord. Give us the humility, the humility to come to you and say, Lord, we can't see, but we want to see. And help us be your hands and your feet and help us represent you um, with eyes that see and with hearts that worship, Lord. Uh, We ask this in your name, Jesus. Amen.